Good morning. So if I, um, if I say God of the Old Testament, do you have a, a feeling or a picture come into mind? I'd say for a lot of my Christian experience, I did. I had an image. I knew theologically that God wasn't supposed to be different. I, I knew that he wasn't different, but I can't say that emotionally that's how I connected. So I, I, I thought when I heard the word, or I felt when I heard the words God of the Old Testament, something different. And this is, this is sort of what I connected with. It comes out of my own story. When my, this was a long time ago, my kids were young. Uh, I worked for a, a youth ministry organization, a national youth ministry organization that had a national conference. And one year that conference was going to be in San Diego, and I thought it'd be a great chance to kind of get away from Colorado. It's always in the middle of the winter, and and so we kind of put our pennies together and we figured we had enough money to drive there as a whole family versus if I just had flown there by myself. And so that's what we did. And, and my kids were small at that time. They were about, I would, I would say, seven and eight and a half, nine years old. And from my house to where we were going to stay in San Diego at my friend's house was about 18 hours of, of driving. And, I remember we loaded up the old station wagon and we pulled out and we're heading, heading west on I-70. We're gone about five minutes when in the back seat I begin to hear this, you know. Mom, he's on my side. Dad, she's touching me. Mom, he's looking at me. Five minutes. It's an 18 and a half hour drive. But I'm going to our annual national spiritual renewal conference. <laughs> so I have to be good. And we do the conference and we leave to drive home after a week of spiritual renewal. About five minutes out of San Diego, I begin to hear in the back seat, Mom! But the conference is over. <laughs> I don't feel like I need to be so spiritual anymore. But I actually did pretty good. And I remember, I can still visualize, I know we were somewhere in the plains of Utah. I know we had been driving for maybe eight or nine hours. And I began to hear them ratchet it up. I had told them to be quiet. And I will admit, because I am driving, and we all know that the driver is the pilot, and quite frankly, I was really irritated with my wife, who is co-pilot and in charge of passenger conduct, <laughs> and not doing her job. And, and somewhere in the middle of the night, as they began, I had an aneurysm as I was driving. And something exploded, and I began to go like this. I told you to be quiet. It's not safe. And I couldn't reach them. They had pinned themselves into the corners of the seats. And this really irritated me, and so I just yelled at them. I will admit that there's a sense in which that's kind of how I view the God of the Old Testament. 
that if I'm just being me, it's possible I'm going to irritate him. And if he gets irritated, it's really bad. But sometimes you don't even know that that's what you're doing. And it felt, sometimes it felt a little arbitrary. And, and obviously, I'm not proud of that parental moment. And I would say that is not who I believe God is in any way. I had this moment where I was, for some reason, I was reading in the Old Testament. And I, I stumbled on a couple of verses. I was in that part of the Old Testament where it really is, it feels like a lot about rules. And, you know, sometimes as you're reading, they, they, they begin to feel, I just couldn't connect with them. I didn't understand it. And then I read this really strange verse, and it repeats itself, that we're going to talk about today. Leviticus 19.9 began to change how I understood the rules, how I understood God. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, and then I think it's over in 23, verse 22. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners leaving, living among you. I am the Lord your God. This is called the law or the rule of the harvest. Let me see if I can help you visualize this. Almost all fields are laid out in straight lines and grids. Most interpretation of this verse, as we hear the word edges, and it could be the edges if, let's say, this was your field, the rule states that you cannot harvest all the way to the edge. The language maybe is a little bit hard to understand. Mostly over time, it's been interpreted because of the word that you have to make a rounded corner. That in other words, you can't take your tractor, run it up into that corner, back it up. They didn't have tractors, but you get the idea. And then run it across this way. That you had to leave a radius. That's the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest is that you had to make a radius in the corner that whatever was dropped had to stay and whatever you missed on the first pass got to stay. So there's kind of three components. A rounded corner, whatever gets dropped, and whatever you miss. Now, that part sounds consistent with the way sometimes I've understood the, the Old Testament or the rules. It's very clear. Or is it? And that's what, for some reason, it, as I read these verses, I stopped 
See, I've always thought it's all very clear. The rules are very clear. And then I noticed something. I really hadn't noticed before. I started thinking, what if I were a farmer? And I'm guessing if I've worked really hard and I've made this crop, I'm, I'm kind of wanting to maximize my harvest, right? And so I noticed that there is absolutely no regulation as to the size of the radius. In other words, could I just barely go in the corner and make a tiny little turn? And I don't know, I'm not a farmer in those days, but I'm supposing they had some big old wagons that they put all the harvest on. Let me show you in my imagination how I designed the wagon because you see it's the things that fall off the wagon that you couldn't pick back up, right? So I'm not an artist, so forgive me, but here's my wagon. There are the wheels. That's the platform. That's the part that goes out to the horses. Let me show you my sides. Like, I think I'm going to be designing like this 30-foot-tall wagon with no way for anything to fall off the sides. And I'm telling my guys that are harvesting, go slow. Pick everything you see because we only get one chance at this. And it began this thought that I've missed understanding the rules. Because I immediately begin to think of the application or what I'm going to call the fruit of the rules. And I made a little change because as I began to think about that and I noticed that God didn't give anything specific about the corners or how slow to go or how tall my wagon could be. He gave me a principle, a value. And here's my belief. I think all the rules are about the root and not so much about the fruit. All of the rules are about the roots and not the fruit. One, all the rules are rooted in a father's love. And all of the rules are rooted in a value that comes out of that father's love. How it gets expressed can look very different. This doesn't change. So, for example, in this story about the, this rule about the law of the harvest, what are the values? What are the values that you see? Let's just practice for a minute. What are some of the values that comes out of a father's love? 
Love for the poor, okay? So, God loves the poor. Anything else? Generosity. Generosity. I heard compassion, what? Sanctuary. The sanctuary is always the right answer. Compassion. So, it's not about exactly what it's going to look like. But if you think about it, we become mostly obsessed with what the fruit looks like, how it's done. And we forget the love of a father and the values. My uh, son was uh, four years old. I was still working at this ministry, and I had to go for some training in Indiana or um, Illinois. And we lived, in, um, we lived here in, outside of Denver. And I lived at that time in a townhouse complex that, that had all the, the, the driveways and the carports all were into a, a shared alley. And there was a long alley that was behind the townhouses, and then we were at the top where there was a little T, and there was only just very few townhouses up there. So a lot of cars coming up this alley, but at our, in our, at where we were, not very many cars. So we had a rule, my wife and I, we had a rule that was, you can play anywhere you want in the alley behind our house, but you can't go down the long alley. So I was in this training conference. I was in a room, you know, about this size, filled with people. There's a person up there, they're training us. And I see somebody running up to the stage, and he gives him a piece of paper and whispers in his ear, and he just speaks into the microphone. I have an emergency phone call for a Carl Wheeler. So, of course, you know, my heart's pumping. This is pre-cell phone texting days. And so I jump up, and the phone is at the main office, which is a good quarter of a mile away. And so I'm hoofing it over there. I pick up the phone, and on the other end is my boss here in Denver. First words out of his mouth. Carl, Brandon has been hit by a car. First words out of his mouth. I had that, literally, the only time this ever happened where my knees actually buckled, and there happened to be a chair, and I just fell into this chair, and I gasped, everybody. Second words out of his mouth. Brandon is just fine. (laughs) Now, side note, in, in the future, I have admonished him to consider changing the order of the words at which he gives me or someone else that kind of news makes a big difference. But regardless, what had happened was Brandon was playing in the alley behind our house with his friend, and they had a ball. And the ball, because it was a slight slope going down the hill, had gotten away from them and rolled down the hill. And Dad is in Illinois, the one who makes arbitrary and cruel rules because Dad hates it when he has fun, the belief in his heart. And so he runs down the alley to get the ball, but he has small, short, stubby legs, and he is tired when he gets the ball. And so he sits down. And in this alley, in one of the townhouses, was an older woman who drove a 1966 Pontiac, which was an enormous car with its own zip code. And she was very small, and she could see to drive by looking above the top of the dash and underneath the arch of the 
wheel. That's about all she could see. And as she turned the corner, she didn't see a little boy sitting there, and she ran over his foot and knocked him to the ground. Brandon believed that the reason I had made this rule was because I was arbitrary and a control person. He didn't grasp that the only reason I didn't want him to go down the alley was because I love him. Every rule can be put against the grid of a father's love and a value. We're going to um, practice with some examples. What I find interesting, if we're start, let's start with our first example. Let's start with the law of the harvest. That's a rule or a law. And I, I understand that God has tremendous compassion on the poor. He, he talks about that. What is fascinating about the rules is in the rules, these quote, the laws of God, there is no winner and loser. In other words, God's compassion for the farmer is as equal to his compassion for the poor and the sojourner. In other words, God knows, even though I may not feel that, that to be generous is in my best interest. Not just in the interest of the poor. They benefit also. We all benefit. See, the rules of God are rooted in a, such a way that there's no such thing as a loser in the rules. Because only God can sort of work that out. So the idea of making a radius corner or leaving food is as much for me as it is for them. You, uh, you and I, unlike maybe other generations who had their own struggles, but we live in a culture, many of us live in a culture in which we experience and see the devastation of greed. We know people who have more things than they can ever manage, and they wake up each day obsessed and worried about what's going to happen to their stuff. That's why we, we hear when Jesus says later on, store your treasure in heaven where, where bad things can't happen to it because bad things are going to happen to our stuff here. Jesus knows what bondage is to that. And one of the ways out of bondage is generosity. One of the ways out of the bondage of greed and never having enough and the worry and the anxiety of that is to practice generosity. It's a gift to us. The rules are not a curse. What is the... The rules can be explicit or not so explicit. What are the rules around... Alcohol, for instance. Think about what you know, either from the Bible, it's okay, or what are the rules about alcohol? Moderation. Moderation. Okay. 
What else? Don't get drunk. Sort of. You could probably say those two capture the way the rule is supposed to look. Moderation and don't get drunk. Now, here's my question. What's the definition of drunk? And what's the definition of moderation? Not as clear as maybe as we would like to think it is. Let me show you how I think this kind of plays out and why when you think about this side, when you think only about the fruit side, what it's going to look like, it can lead to trouble. Now, those of you, I've, I've been here a long time, I've shared openly that I've had my struggles with alcohol. I would identify as an alcoholic. And as a, as a Christian and as a Christ follower, I, I sort of knew about the, the rules. I knew the rule was moderation and don't get drunk. And so, honestly, I, as an alcoholic, rarely would I have been technically drunk. I don't know that you would have known that I had been drinking to excess. That wasn't my pattern, was not drinking to excess. My pattern was I drunk every day at 3.30 and on the weekends at 1 o'clock and on Sunday after church at 7 when we were done. So this is Saturday, this is Sunday, and this is Monday through Friday, every day. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, it's nowhere in the Bible does it say you cannot drink every day. As a matter of fact, a lot of you are sitting here going, well, I, I tend to have a glass of wine every night. So what I could do is I could do what I was trying to do. I could sort of start trying to manage the fruit side of this. Well, you know, if, you're drinking, if you drink a glass of wine every day, that's just wrong. What I did it was I began to become obsessed with what is the definition of drunk and what is moderation. And I did all the things that you hear about alcoholics doing. Well, I'm, I'm not going to drink hard alcohol. I'm just going to drink beer. Or I'm just going to have wine. I've tried it all. Because all I could think about was the fruit side of the rule. But what's underneath the rule? What, what, was, what was the Father's love trying to be expressed in a value? What was the value that God wanted for me? He didn't want my life to be controlled. That's what he wanted. God didn't want me to wake up every day with the shame of failing. God loves me. If you become obsessed with the, the fruit side of things, you're going to talk about amount, 
and ritual. If you talk about the heart thing, it looks different. So for six and a half years, I haven't had a drink with God's help. And as I've shared that story publicly, often somebody will come and want to talk to me, and they will ask me this question, Carl, do you think I'm an alcoholic? I always tell them there's no way to know. I never talk about amounts or often. I just ask them this, is your life controlled by alcohol? Let's, let's practice with one more. We could put, honestly, we could put anything that we believe to be a rule up on this board. Anything that we, we uh, assume, uh, there, there's a rule around it. It could be uh, sex, church, it could be anything. Let me get, give you one more. This is, this is, this is going to sound strange, that, but if you think about us as humans, how we do this, I'm going to put the word evangelism up here. Now, I became a Christ follower in ninth grade. I'm now 54. So in the intervening years, I will say this. I don't know that I've ever heard a message on evangelism where I walked out of the message feeling better about myself than when I went in. Like, it, it seems like the point of every message on evangelism is, Carl, you really suck. Like, you're, you're really, really a sucky evangelist. And so what I did was I, 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 I tried to manage all the fruit side of it. I was uh, part of this youth ministry evangelistic organization. And at that time, and we all change and evolve, and I'm not saying that the methodology was bad, but for me it was bad. And so we had a... Um, sort of a formula that we taught kids on how they could share Jesus. Have any of you ever been taught a formula on how to share Jesus? Yeah. And so we were in this, every couple of years we would gather from all over the country, high school students, and then we would train them. And so again, I was part of that and I was training hundreds and hundreds of kids in Washington, D.C in this methodology that I had this inner conflict with that I just always felt terrible about it. I had anxiety about flying. Do you know why I had anxiety about flying? Not, I wasn't worried about, I'm not worried about falling out of the plane. I'm, I was always worried that I had to begin and end a conversation about how to come to Jesus with the poor schmuck stuck next to me. And I had all this anxiety about it because I was just obsessed with the fruit rule side of it. So anyhow, we're in Washington, D.C., and I'm walking along, and I just finished one of the sessions, and so there's a bunch of kids, you know, kind of walking with me, and we're walking back to the hotel, and sort of out of the shadow, drums, this woman sort of appears, jumps out. And she has um, like this little, uh, you can tell, a little saying that she has used lots and lots. I'm, I'm hungry. Will you give me a dollar? 
I'm hungry, will you give me a dollar? I'm hungry, will you give me a dollar? Something like that. And so she jumped out and she said, I'm hungry, will you give me a dollar? And I sort of stepped back and, and it was late and I didn't want to mess with it. And so I, I just said to her, well, what's your name? She said, Nadine. And I said, well, Nadine, there's a McDonald's across the street. I'd be happy to go over there and buy you a, a hamburger. And I knew she did not want a hamburger in that moment. I could smell on her breath. I could tell she had all. I knew that it wasn't really that she was hungry for a hamburger. And, and then she got mad at me, and she said, well, I'm not, I'm not hungry right now. I'm going to be hungry later when you're not here, and, and, and I won't have any money, so can you give me a dollar now, and then I'll buy a hamburger later when I'm actually hungry? And I said, no, no, I won't do that, and I just moved on. And so I'm, I, I get in bed, and I'm thinking about the next day, and I'm going to be training these kids on the seven rules and laws about evangelism. And, um, and I'm thinking about how this woman appeared, and these guys are watching me. And, and basically, we're trying to tell them you could, to turn every conversation into an opportunity to, to share Jesus. And I'm feeling really guilty because I just blew her off. And... and so I prayed this little prayer. I said, Lord, I feel really bad about that. Will you give me another chance with Nadine? And so I um, finished the conference, and I had a break one afternoon, and so I went and did this bus sort of tour where you just, I didn't have time to go tour all the sites, but I kind of wanted to see them all. And I, then I got off on the other side of Washington, D.C. and started walking my way back to the hotel. And I was a long ways, a couple miles from where we were, and I look down this hill, and I see Nadine down there panhandling again. And I remembered my prayer, and I get all excited. And so I'm running down the hill, Nadine, Nadine! And this poor woman is completely freaked out because she has no memory of just the, you know, a couple days ago because she was kind of drunk, and she doesn't even know who I am. And I can see in her eyes, and she's sort of backing off of me, and she goes, how do you know my name? <laughs> I should have said, I have power. <laughs> but I... Um, I explained, I said, hey, I met you just a couple days ago. As soon as I said that, she goes, hey, I'm hungry. Can I have a dollar? And I said, whoa, Nadine, <laughs> I've heard the spiel. And I reached in my pocket and I said, I've got, um, I've only got a couple of, I think I had 36 cents. I said, I'll give you 36 cents. Let me ask you one question. This was part of the, the tool we were training kids with at that time. And she said, sure. And I said, here's the question. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Do you guys, anybody been in a training where that was kind of part of what you were taught? If you were to die tonight, where would you go? And I had asked hundreds and hundreds of people that question, especially people next to me on airplanes, which is a terrible thing to ask somebody on an airplane. <laughs> and, um, and she said, but I'd never had somebody do this. I had never had somebody with sincerity and, and sort of brokenness, not trying to be cute, not trying to be funny. She looked me in the eye and she says, I'm going to hell. And I, you know, I, I sort of stepped back because in my training, you know, it was all about flow chart. If they say this, you say this, and if they say that, then you go here, you know, and you just flow chart to them to the kingdom. And, <laughs> and, and I didn't have one for a sincere person going, I'm going to hell. And I, so I, I go, well, why? <laughs> You're supposed to want to go to heaven. And, and she said, because I'm bad. I'm really bad. And I started, and I, I said, oh my gosh, you, you're so close. And I started to, to try to explain to her in my own words. There was a guy across the sh 
street from behind me. She was standing here, I'm here, and he's behind me. And she begins to have a conversation with him. He's panhandling. And I'm talking, and she's just talking to him like I'm not there. And I thought, well, that's all right. And so I just turned, I walked away. I'd only gone maybe three, four steps. She goes, hey, you who knows my name. I felt like an Indian chief. <laughs> Will you hug me? And so I went back, and I, Nadine was a very malnourished woman. I don't know. She may have been only in her 40s, but she looked like she was 80. She had a deep scar running from her ear down her cheek. Clearly, she hadn't bathed in a long time. She was just this broken woman, frail, and I held those bones. And in that moment, I feel like that's the best I've ever communicated the gospel. Like the best I've ever done at expressing to somebody, the best I've ever done at being an evangelist was just in that moment when I really loved her and I just wanted to hold her. See, I, I became obsessed about the fruit, like what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like, you know, every person. And it's, I'm supposed to get through my, sh my spiel. How do you spell spiel? I think that's spiel, but it doesn't, you know what I mean? That, that's what I thought about instead of the, the heart of a father and the values which are he loves everyone. And that it looks different for everybody. It's so bizarre that, and I'm not against any kind of evangelism attempt. Honestly, I'm not. I'm not trying to manage this up here at all. As long as it's rooted in the love and heart of a father and the values that he has, that everybody's journey looks a little bit different. That he's not, I don't believe, into coercion. I can remember sort of pigeonholing people. They would give this answer, I would have a better answer. They would give this, I'd give a better answer. You would think I would learn over time, Carl, not a lot of people are falling in love with Jesus with your methodology. But it didn't matter because I was all about this. I could, all I had to do was say, I share Jesus with 20 people. And quite frankly, I could sort of bully somebody into saying a little prayer. I don't know anything about their heart. Every rule is rooted in the heart of a father and in values. As I read the scriptures, that has changed how I understand and look at everything. You see, we learn from Jesus that it is the, the law that kills. What he means by that, it is when we obsess with the expression of the rule that it will kill you. There's tons of stories where, 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 where people wanted to manage the fruit. You remember the, the rule about not working on the Sabbath. And yet his disciples are walking through a field and they eat a little bit of the grain. People were obsessed about how they were managing 
the expression of the rule and had no concern about where the rule came from. It came out of a father's heart who loves people and wants people to experience his love. Every rule is rooted in the Father's love and in deep values. Let me pray for us. Lord, we have experienced your your grace, your forgiveness. We've experienced your heart. Draw us back to that every time we're confronted with the feelings of shame and regret because we didn't live up to a rule. Help us live out of the values that you have for us, what you want for us. Change how we experience you and how we read your words. In Jesus' name, amen.